Hillary with Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. <laughs> That's what it is. Special coronavirus edition. <laughs> uh, we are practicing social distancing. Very distant. <laughs> 1,000 miles away. Um, we, uh, I, I was, I'm joking that I have the coronavirus, but I, uh, uh-huh. I looked at the symptoms and I'm pretty sure I don't. I just kind of feel like crap, uh, probably because I didn't sleep good last night, but um. Uh, here's hoping I don't, no one, no one gets it. Here's oh, hoping yeah. no one gets it. Yeah. Uh, I've been thinking since, uh, the, the university where I work has, uh, just started communicating about, uh, coronavirus and it turns out whatever, all of this is like very complicated to deal with just from an administrative perspective. This is not from thinking about like people's actual suffering or anything. Um, but one of the phrases that keeps sticking in my mind from like emails we've gotten is out of an abundance of caution, Yeah. <laughs> which I feel like, yeah, that's the only thing we get in abundance. It's caution. Thank you very much. <laughs> we've got loads of caution here for you. Mm-hmm. Um, Hillary, are you talking to a microphone? I am. Can you make sure that you move your mouth closer to that microphone? I can move my mouth closer to the See, microphone. that sounds much better. Because okay. in the last episode, I think my voice was uh, too loud uh, and yours was too quiet. And you believe that's a microphone problem? That's a distance of your <laughs> mouth to the microphone problem. Okay. Not a, a your, not a your voice problem? No, it's saying? not a your voice problem. It's a social distancing from the microphone, <laughs> which you don't need to social distance yourself from. Um, so we're back, uh, we've been gone for a few weeks because of just, you know, life as we usually, uh, promise to always come back and we don't come back, but we always do come back, but not in a timely manner. Yes. Well, I mean, this is reasonably timely. It's, it's okay. I mean, I prefer to do it every week, but, uh, and I tried to do it, uh, to fill in the gap of my own inimitable way, uh, with, a rambling episode about a few movies and a book or something but um we're back on uh, the on track with aurora kim stanley robinson's uh, novel from 2015 in this kim stanley robinson read-along podcast uh we're in chapter two of aurora it's called land ho land ho awesome awesome chapter this okay, so yeah, I've because we planned on um, doing this episode a couple of times. I've had to read it like I've had to read it three times mm-hmm. now, at least. And uh, this is truly like a masterpiece. This chapter, yeah, it's amazing. Like it's I really, could really amazing. Definitely just assign this one chapter at, in a class, you know, and um, have a, an enormous amount to say about about it in. Uh, a lot of different um, sort of areas, right? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. It's really remarkable. Yeah, it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful chapter, and um, I I think it's right that it's like a 
uh, it's doing a lot of different kinds of work at once and asking you to sort of like um, think in a very layered way about the story and also about how the story is told, um, which is a really uh, remarkable and kind of bold thing to do in a science fiction novel, I think. I mean, it always matters how the story is told, but that's not usually called to your attention in the way that it is here. No, I mean, it's this remarkable example of like, you know, modernist self-reflexivity going on in this chapter that makes you reflect upon the entire reading experience of the entire book uh, and puts that in your mind that you have to be constantly thinking about about that. And especially in relation to to devices like literary devices like tense, mood and voice, Um, you know, who is speaking? When are they speaking? um, Who are they speaking to? all these kinds of really interesting, really interesting things uh, going on that that uh, get get kind of started up in this chapter. Yeah, I was talking to uh, my friend uh, Phil the other week, uh, fan of the show, Phil, mm-hmm. friend of the show, friend of the pod, Hi, Phil. Uh, fan of the pod. Uh, and we were talking, whatever, we were talking about a lot of things, um, but also about Kim Stanley Robinson, because whenever Phil and I talk, we spend a lot of time <laughs> talking about Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, And Phil was saying, I'm not going to capture how he said it because he had a really good way to say it. But we were talking about Aurora and I was saying that one of the many, many things that I really love about this book is that I think that it has this really, um, you know, one, it has this very like um, complicated and I think extremely intelligent, but also moving engagement like with the novel form itself. Yes. um, Which I think is always actually there in Stan's writing. I think it's very much there in the Mars trilogy, and that's something we've talked about. And we talked about that when we when we talked with Stan uh, at that bar at O'Hare mm-hmm. Airport, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and Phil was like, yeah, you know, um, he has the sort of, not only the kind of knowledge of, like, narrative theory, um, but also this writerly ability that normally you would think would translate into writing, like, I don't know, like experimental fiction or mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't know, theory fiction or a variety of like, whatever, sort of like kind of high, whatever. There are a lot of yeah. sort of like high literary moves. Um, but instead, like he writes um, extremely readable science fiction mm-hmm. that makes um, – sense and speaks to you regardless of whether you have any interest in like a theoretical account of what the novel does or not. Yeah. Um, And I think that that like, so there's nothing, there's nothing about the way in which we get a kind of part of what's happening in this chapter, I think really is on the terrain of like what we refer to as like literary theory. Um, but there's nothing that requires you to read it in that way at all. And yet I think you could learn a little bit or at least think a bit about storytelling and like, you know, what the sort of like um, possibilities and kind of pitfalls of making something into a narrative. You can definitely think about that through this chapter without needing to be able to like, you know, I I don't know, think about like mood or think complexly about metaphor or any of those things. And I think that's like, that's amazing. And that it's all here, like not done for its own sake or for kind of like postmodernist, like self-reflection. It's done because this is actually like deeply part of the story and deeply how the book wants us to 
kind of think about what we are learning about making this kind of little contained world that is this generationship and also how the novel wants us to think about the kind of project that the generationship is on that is finding us, you know, planet B terraforming, moving to a new place, a yeah. new planet. Well, yeah. And it's, yeah, as you say, it's like not a, it's not used as a gimmick at all. Like it's comes, it arises very organically from the situation, the narrative situation that he constructs in that the, that the novel itself constructs that, and that then that, um, that level of metaphor, the importance of metaphor, um, which by the end of the chapter becomes shifts into analogy, which I'm, curious to uh hear you talk about but um metaphor you know the the ship is kind of a model or a metaphor for the earth and the novel itself as a form is kind of a metaphor for like living in a certain way there's this kind of like um relationship between Mm -hmm. the novel and like the realist novel and life itself there's they're, they're they're both kind of model that you know the novel and the ship are both models of the world and and exercises or experiments in modeling um a kind of new uh world and and uh arenas for sort of yeah experimentation i guess mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it's really yeah cool. yeah and it seems like this is also a chapter that's about experiment toward the end of the chapter we get devi saying you know with her usual uh, deep frustration I, to Freya, you know, the people who started on this voyage, we're their experiment, yeah. right? Um, and the chapter, and, uh, you know, the ship who is now narrating to us is yeah. also experimenting with different kinds of narrative modes yeah. or different modes of telling a story, some of which are not narrative and some of which are narrative. And the chapter also follows Freya beginning the experiment of having a life, you know, having her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get this really great, like we both get given the world of the ship and the world of the ship, as you were just saying, is meant in some ways to recapitulate our planet. Um, and then we have this kind of, and we're heading toward in the ship, we're heading toward another world, something that supposedly will be a world. And then we have this kind of question about whether something contained in the way and small in the way that a ship this ship is um uh or something that is not earth at all could be a world for us right so we both get like you know what is conventionally called world building in the chapter because we're getting the contours of the of the location where the stuff is taking place in the novel and we're also getting these questions about what a world is right and what the relationship between a world and um sustainable life Yes. Mm-hmm. And all of that in the context of what the ship acknowledges as it's learning how to write a narrative, like the process of writing the narrative is itself the ship teaching itself how to write a narrative as it presumably goes off and reads some narrative theory in a bunch of novels <laughs> in the context of um, a, a linear uh, format, right? Like it has to mm-hmm, unfold mm-hmm. over time. And so... Like you have that experiment unfolding, but then also you have very interesting moments, just like little, you know, very, I mean, things that are very typical in a narrative, but because they've been set up um, as the ship is learning how to write a narrative, you have to actually ask yourself um, how all this happened because 
it there is some foreshadowing here there uh, are and, like yes yeah, there yeah, is yeah. like backshadowing or you know or whatever <laughs> you call it what do you call it uh when it, it refers to something that happened in the past that is mysteriously that is mysterious that's going to be unfolded in the future right um well there, that's so yeah i mean it's com- great to it's yeah, great to ask what that's called, right? Because yeah. it is foreshadowing, but yeah. it is about the past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's just like, I mean, that alone, I mean, that yeah, it, it, it's just kind of this masterpiece of, <clears throat> yeah, narrative, writing, literary theory, all kind of rolled into one. It's really cool. And, and then with, like, the real pleasure of seeing these different biomes as Freya yeah. moves around on her wander yard. Yeah. Um, which I just like that part is so just cap totally captivating to me anyway you know the idea of all of these like different ecosystemic ways of life um, which at first we see as these kind of like separate biomes and then we begin to realize are also part of a whole and suffer from like the same kinds of systemic problems Um, we also get um, something we talked about last time we get more of here is the idea that like you know, there's a sort of official account of what life is on the ship as it takes place in these different biomes. And then there is also like an unofficial, the idea of people who are living in other ways. We get raised here for the first time. Um, the idea of like substantial descent to the kind of general agreement to how people are supposed to live on the ship, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and the other thing I was going to say up front that I think is I really love about this chapter is the chapter is all those things, and it's also like about a relationship between two beings, one of whom is a human and uh, for the course of this chapter is alive, uh, and that's Devi. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the ship, um, a different kind of being um, who's sort of uh, how we're supposed to understand its consciousness and its degree of consciousness is complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how we're whether or not we should be thinking of ship, I, which I think is not really an it, but a they. At some point, they mm. they suggest they as a good pronoun for them, hmm. um, and uh, 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 you know the w- whether we can think of ship as um, also you know alive as having the characteristics of being alive that matter, um, but but the chapter is a lot implicitly. And then toward the end, quite explicitly, about the relationship between Ship and Devi, mm-hmm. um, which Ship describes as love. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of thinking about love and the kind of entanglements of, you know, Ship's attempt to do this storytelling and to take care of things um, and to learn as um, having something deeply to do with love, with the love between Ship and Devi, which is love between a, a human and a machine. Um, I, I think it's a big, I think that's actually quite a big part of the book too, is, Mm -hmm. are these like, um, uh, are these kind of questions about, um, love and association and relation that become increasingly complicated as the novel goes on. But I think there, we get that here. And I think it's really interesting to think that these complicated questions about all of these ways of life and these like ecosystemic problems, um, and also how you tell a story and what a narrative is are all bound up um, also with love. Yes, love is a really interesting term that pops up uh, again and again in this chapter. But it's all I was going to add too to that the relationship between Devi and Ship is that it's all sort of inflected through the gaze of Freya, 
which is weird to say because, of course, Ship is doing the narrating so that um, there's this kind of story within a story going on that um, Ship is instructed by Devi to tell the story of Ship and Ship chooses Freya as the uh, the protagonist, a, a story of high protagonicity, as mm-hmm. it's described, um, so that a lot of you know what we see, we we see by following Freya, even though, and and there's a certain amount of focalization through Freya, even though at various intervals we are reminded that it is Ship telling the story, it is Ship in charge of the narrative. Ship oftentimes, it's also, I mean, extraordinarily touching chapter. Uh, emotion like sad and also very funny because there are times when ship breaks in and says this is not true right um that's that's not real or there are times when devi breaks in and like interrupts ships uh presumable presumed narration being like ship you're doing it wrong this sucks (laughs) you know go back to the drawing board Um, right right so there there's just um so much going on there and 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 the place of freya in all of this is really is really interesting, which, you know, kind of brings me back to like that, the, the love that you brought up, which on the first page of the chapter, when Ship is kind of meditating about um, how narrative, how can a narrative event ever be adequate, no rubric to decide what to include, there's too much to explain, not just what happened, but how, but no, or how, but why can humans do it? What is this thing called love, right? Like, where did that word love even uh, yeah. come from? Uh, it's really interesting. Well, and I think that that, yes, there's so many interesting, like the the interruptive moments. You were saying earlier that one of the things um, that this chapter sets up, which happens um, more often, it happens, I think, most explicitly in this section of the novel, but there are a couple of other moments where we really get this kind of uh, we get heightened for us the question of like uh, how is narrative time progressing here mm-hmm. because the moments of interruption when like Devi is like ship stop just listing names tell the story right. or ship stop talking about yourself you need to pick a character to focus on right those moments make it sound as though what we're hearing here is a conversation because ship is quite conversational mm-hmm. as narrators go mm-hmm. <laughs> a conversation between ship and Devi, which is taking place like in, you know, like real time, like we're reading a, a conversation ongoing now. Right. Um, uh, but then as we get caught up, once ship actually begins doing sort of eventful narration, then we get caught up in that and we're like living in that narrative time. And because we're following Freya around on like a journey of development, we're also living in the time of like, um, you know, lifetime or mm-hmm. the time of maturation, right? Um, and Freya's time, right? Um, but then when that gets interrupted again, and it gets interrupted by Devi at a very, at a key moment, mm-hmm. um, all of a sudden we're thrown back on, so wait, when did this happen? Like, you know, yeah. is the present for us like a conversation between Ship and Devi? Well, that turns out by the end of the chapter, we know that that's not true. Yeah. Um, uh, so where we are kind of like in relation to the now of the novel is something that's like open here, I think in yeah. really interesting ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, the, the, so the earliest date in uh, the chapter is mm-hmm. on page 46 where 
uh, it says the Starship's voyage began in the Common Era, year 2545. The ship's voyage has now lasted 159 years and 119 days. So that's when the kind of narrative, the narrative telling that the ship is doing to Devi begins the last date we see in the chapter is uh 170017 so the telling of this chapter from start to finish of the writing of at least this chapter takes place over a span of 11 years or so mm. 10 10 and a half years or something like that mm-hmm. but it also throws us back on like a question for me it throws me back on a question of like who wrote the first chapter right, right. like did the ship go back and write the the Freya chapter, um, Starship Girl, at some point. And then, of course, l- looking forward to the novel, we should mention, like, spoiler alert, but there'll be a real big question at the end of, like, how did this story survive or, you know, was transmitted? It's almost like a Call Me Ishmael thing or something like that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. at least he survived to tell the story, but... Um, it's really, it's really just really mysterious and interesting and cool. Yeah, I mean, we will definitely have to come back to that toward the end. And hopefully I'll be able to remember, I had a student last year who wrote uh, just a really beautiful paper about the narrative temporality and ship as the narrator mm-hmm. um, that makes a, like a very sort of... Um, like it makes a kind of claim that you couldn't, you can't really support from the novel, a sort of like a speculative claim. Uh, anyway, hopefully I'll be able to remember that person's argument because it was like really lovely and arresting and kind of made me rethink the way in which this happens over the course of the book. And I just, I mean, on this regard, since we're like kind of talking about the ship as the narrator, um, I feel like, you know, this is, this is a novel that, um, you know, I've said some things about the ways in which, like, reviews that I read of it talked about it as being, like, you know, this is, like, realist, realistic in in uh, opposition to utopian. Mm. And I've said, like, oh, I think that's, like, a wrong reading of the novel. Um, but also a thing that I think came out in certain kinds of reviews or, like, readerly responses was, you know, sort of, like, complaining about, like, the realism of the science in here, like, and particularly, like, um, the AI or the quantum computer that is about ship, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I, I got to say, I just, like, um, I whatever it's not like i don't know shit about quantum computing Mm -hmm. other than like the most basic things it's possible to know but i sure would rather read like um an interesting like incredibly intellectually deeply grounded sort of like speculation on um storytelling narrative form um and like the attack the po- the possibility of attachment between like a non-living conscious entity and a human being then i would like to read like an accurate account of like you know a quantum computer exactly <laughs> i mean i just i you know i don't know i mean like I, these are the ways in which like i I love science fiction and I, I think about it all the time. And yet in some ways I'm like, Oh, I'm like not a good reader of science fiction because like, I don't care about things like that. Like, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, there can be scenes in which that could be an interesting question, but here I think like we're getting something profoundly interesting being asked about, 
you know, about care and authority, um, about what binds people together. And like, that is so much more interesting than like, you know, whatever, a supposedly accurate representation. Well, and, 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 you know, uh, and meditations on what consciousness is and what role narrative play and storytelling play in the construction of a consciousness and how they, you know, co-create each other in a way. And, <clears throat> I mean, these are far more, these are problems that are, you know, uh, you know, I think they're, they're what the novel was built for. I mean, the novel as a form, right, was built for in, in so many ways. And um, yeah, if you want to know about quantum computing, go get a fucking textbook, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Why? You know, it's like, it's like, it's like if, you know, if you want to send a message, call Western Union, you know, you don't watch, uh, you don't watch a movie, a fictional movie to learn how to like, you know, lasso a cow or something like that. I don't know. Um, anyway. No, no. You don't, you don't do that. You just don't do that. You just don't do that. You just don't do that. Um, anyway, let's get into it, but I just want to flag a couple of moments of uh, tense um, mm. in on page 47 you know the uh, ship says that only became apparent later which is at the mm -hmm. beginning um, mm -hmm. about like what a criticality really is and at the bottom mm -hmm. of the page ship's current deceleration has caused problems with which Devi is still dealing other problems will soon follow resulting from the ship's arrival in the Tau Ceti system you have to wonder you know um, is this you know, is this foreshadowing or is it prediction? Um, right. What, or a joke, a joke about foreshadowing. Or a joke about foreshadowing, which it <laughs> also certainly is. Um, uh, but also that the the ship is experimenting with like past, future, past, present, and future mm -hmm. tenses, mm -hmm. mixing them all up together, um, and uh, and uh, learning how to how to tell a story. The next thing we get is this thing about metaphor where Devi uh where the the ship is just giving incredibly dry information about and, and very just factual information about what's what the ship is where it's going what it's made of how what the astronomical unit of Tau Ceti is all this stuff <laughs> Devi Devi interrupts uh get to the point um Use subordination to help with the sequencing. I've heard that can be very useful. You're supposed to use metaphors to make things clearer or more vivid or something. I don't know. I'm not much for writing myself. You're going to have to figure it out by doing it. Um, <laughs> there's just a lot of great advice to writers in this uh, chapter as well. Just figure it out by doing it. Later on, uh, on 52, there's always, there's always too much to explain Get used to that. Stop worrying about it. Good advice for anyone writing a dissertation or uh, a master's <laughs> thesis or really just any or an email or anything, you know, or trying to talk to another person or just trying to talk to another person. <laughs> You're just never going to succeed. Just try and do the best you can. I think one of my favorite moments. So th this is kind of the early sequence of the chapter is like we're actually getting I mean, and part of what is like so great about this is we're getting like. Um, these these sections where ship is getting narrative wrong, right? Or right. it's not narrating. It's like doing something else, and then Devi's gonna call ship on it. Um, 
these are, you know, these are like classic, like just info dumps, right? Mm -hmm. Here's what this is like, you know, um, oh, and here's what's happening here. And here's how this is structured. Um, but, uh, you know, and I, I happen to like actually be kind of fond of moments like that in mm -hmm. science, in science fiction writing. Um, but here they get interrupted. So your attention is sort of called to the way in which when you get a passage like that, like that's a place where like the narrator is not getting narrative to happen in the way that it needs to be happening. Mm -hmm. So I love the one on 53 where, um, ship is explaining how the ship mm -hmm. <laughs> ship is explaining the ship mm -hmm. and explaining how the biomes fit together and explaining how light and air circulation, et cetera, et cetera, work. And Devi interrupts ship. The narrative shouldn't be all about you, which is, a hilarious moment because mm -hmm. of course we're not when we're reading that description we're not reading that ship describing itself uh, or themselves right nor does ship present it that way um the narrative shouldn't be all about you remember to describe the people inside you and ship's response is living in the ship on voyage date 161.089 are 2122 <laughs> humans in mongolia Alton, Monkey, Koki, Changan, Essen, Batu, Takwatoa, Timur, Kara, Berkey, Isu, Yochi, Gazan, etc., etc. No, read like, them all. Read them all. It, it, <laughs> okay. Matt. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, it's like so. Uh, you know, the hilarity of it is like, well, except for the names. Um, you know, this could be the cast of characters of a 19th century novel. If yeah, they for were sure. Like, you know, Robert, whatever, or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, but instead, we get, the, we get them in a list, and it's, like, so completely inappropriate, and it, like, quote, tells us nothing. Right. But, like, why do we think that that tells us nothing? Because, actually, that is... Name it, that is like naming the name mm -hmm. of everybody who lives and Chip is clearly prepared to continue with this in every biome. Right. Um, and indeed, that would be the way to represent everyone who's there. Right. But of course, that's not how you do it in a novel. And that sort of problem of like, you know, why you focus on a single person or on like a set of characters you know, runs through the rest of this chapter and comes up over and over again in, as we learn that, like, when Freya is traveling around, she always feels like she's met everybody in a biome, even though she's only met a particular percentage of them. Right. We're told that this is the sort of error known as ease of representation, right? Isn't mm -hmm. that right? Something when you like that, think yeah. that we all are constantly feeling like, I know, I know everybody in this, you know, in this department, uh, in on my block, right at my school, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. um, when in fact we only ever know a sort of fixed percentage of the people who we encounter in the course of our life or within a particular sort of institutional space. So we get this really like kind of great back and forth between like, yeah, the reader really want to read all of those names. The reader wants a story, and a story has to like narrow it down. Um, you know, uh, but also, like, there is something that is kind of, like, truer about listing all of the names, at least at one level, than mm -hmm. there is about focusing on, like, the little group of people who we can then feel like we know because they become characters to us. Yeah. I mean, it's also just a great gesture to, like, the great, like, sort of comedic novels or m comedic moments in novels like Gargantua and Pantagruel or Don Quixote or 
Tristram Shandy where they just have a, a paragraph long list of all the stuff that's in a room or all the animals that are in a farm or something like that. And you just have to wade through this gigantic, you know, ridiculous, absurd, the absurdity of listing everything um, as a, you know, it as, yeah, just an absurd uh, practice because it's also not just, dis- I mean, it is descriptive, but it's not descriptive at all. Like these are just right. names of people. And yeah, if you wanted to make the ideal, I mean, if you were a quantum computer, you could probably do it. But since uh, we're not quantum computers, uh, it's probably, it's a little bit more difficult for us to tell the story of the ship from the perspective of every single person uh, living on it. Um, Although, of course, you know, in some ways, I think that it's an interesting move because like yeah. that is a, that is a thing that like, uh, you know, that science fiction comes closer to than realist fiction, yeah. right? Because science fiction is less interested in um, character and imagining that, like, the psyche of a character stands in for the world, right? Or gives us enough of the world mm. or whatever it may be. Um, and more interested in the world and the whole field of social and other relations in the world, mm. you know? Yeah. And yet... At the same time, like, you know, just listing the names, like, only goes, only, only gets you so far. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, at that point, she, you know, tells them to stop again, tells it to stop again, tells them to stop again. Uh, I asked for a narrative account, um, and Ship says, you got it. High protagonicity with Freya as protagonist. And ongoing <laughs> research in narratology. Um you know, vary whatever you do. Don't get stuck in any particular method. Look up diegesis. Look up narrative discourse. Um, uh, and read some novels. Read some novels. I'm too busy <laughs> no. to keep up with this. So come on, do the literature review and then give it a try. And now what – then it starts on a really just – it kind of restarts and it's like a really beautifully written – very evocative chapter, but I think Stan missed an opportunity here because it, it, he could have said this, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single ship in possession of 2,122 humans must be in want of a habitable earth-like planet. Well, yeah, he definitely could have said that, but I feel like that'd be funny. A little bit on the nose. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is why I haven't won any Nebula awards. Is that why I thought it was because you had not actually written a novel? <laughs> okay, the show's over. Thank you for listening, everybody. It's been a really treat, real pleasure. Uh, I mean, I was going to ask you. I I literally have a post-it note on that page. I have so many post-it notes in this book that um, they've lost. They've essentially lost all meaning. It's as if I've written just like yeah. a fragmentary novel in the margins of the novel. But yeah. the um, I was going to ask you, do you think that that, so that passage, so this is 55, so it begins, the winter solstice agrarian festivals in Ring B celebrated the turn of the season by symbolically destroying the old year, and then we get the description of the winter solstice festival. Um, and so there are a lot of things I think we could say about like how this is a, if this is a beginning point to the story, or it, it is a beginning within a beginning, or a beginning after the beginning, or whatever. There are a bunch of things to say about it. But, like, do you, is this a reference to the beginning of a novel? I mean, other than this one? I, you know, I, as you know, I'm uh, not a reader. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. As you know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you have an idea? I mean, winter solstice, I mean, agrarian festivals. 
it makes me think I, of like a Christmas carol or something like Christmas, but it's not a Christmas carol, right? Um, I mean, it made me think of it. I mean, it's a little bit like um, in its sort of uh, straightforwardness and its description of like a, um, you know, a yearly ritual and something that looks like peasant life, which yeah. is a really like awesome way to kind of like begin this. Yeah. I mean, it makes me, I mean, like it, like maybe like a Zola novel, like mm-hmm. Journal or something like that. I mean, I was kind of thinking like 19th century, like naturalism, maybe. That sounds really right to me. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I and it would surprise me if if Stan didn't have a specific novel in mind for well, the that's what beginning I was thinking. of that. Like, it would not be. It's not plausible to me that he doesn't have a specific model in, novel in mind. And like, yeah, Zola probably sounds 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 right to me. Like. Um, because what we see unfold here is so much this incredible, like, um, you know, episodic examination of various kinds of essentially like peasant life, uh, as you Mm -hmm. say, like the, the, the labor of the ship of this high tech, you know, um, quantum computing ship. The labor that takes place on it is, you know, obviously technolo- te- technical and technological on the one hand. But at the end of the day, there's just a lot of sheep herding and salmon <laughs> fisherying. Her- herding and of tiny cows. Herding- <laughs> <laughs> the cows the son of dogs. <laughs> herding dog cows. And dog cows. Milk- milking dog cows and like preparing meals and sitting and eating meals. There's... Um, you know, it, it's it, it it is life down to uh, its bare essentials, and um, it's something very sort of beautiful about it. Um, at the same time, as for for many people, it's uh, incredibly like stultifying, and even for some, they describe it as fascistic, which we could get into later. But uh, yeah, I think that the the um, yeah. So part of so the the beginning part of the chapter, we both have the back and forth with between Devi and Ship, but also Freya is still at home. She's still hanging out with Ewan and the other uh, boys who describe themselves as ferals. Um, Devi does not like that at all. Mm-hmm. And that there the break between the two of them really comes through um, uh, Devi's sort of refusal to like allow Freya to be doing this exploration which is both about exploration, about sort of like the limits of like life on the ship, but also sexual exploration. Mm-hmm. Like Devi, you know, refuses to allow her to do that. And that's that's the point at which Freya is like, I'm going on my wander yard and I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, she wants to break the relationship with Devi. Um, <clears throat> and that part is like, the, the representation of the mother-daughter fights is like quite, painful uh-huh. you know um and then we as as freya is wandering we're both getting freya's life but you know like you were saying we're also seeing seeing the biomes and we and we do see them in the kind of like these are the routines of daily life because freya is going around um as a 
general field assistant or good for anything, mm-hmm. which is what the guy in Antarctica mm. is. Mm. Okay. Did you read that? I haven't read it. Did no. we talk about that? No. Anyway, that's the main character in Antarctica is there as a good for anything or general field assistant. So Freya's just like going around and like taking on the kind of work that is needed. So we see these very like daily life kind of routines, um, which like you were saying are like, primarily like you know agrarian in one way or another um and then toward the end of the chapter when we get back to Devi then we're pulled back from that very close in view on the different biomes and we're reminded that the biomes are actually not these like self-standing units that have like their own ecosystem and their own culture but part of the larger ship ecosystem and that what it takes to make them run is actually not just like the labor that feels so recognizable, right? But in fact, like a lot of like super difficult engineering yeah. and kind of and uh, research science problems is required to keep all of this stuff going. So we have this move from, you know, we feel as Freya moves around, like we're in like these little worlds with mm-hmm. her. And then we're reminded like toward the end of the chapter that actually this is all a ship. And the sort of the set of things that we're seeing, we're really only getting this very partial view as we travel with Freya. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's also, you know, yeah, so you get this partial view, you get a partial view <clears throat> of the people and the things in it, uh, which kind of uh, reinforces that. It makes me think of like the scale of the ship, which, of course, is enormous, mm. but at the same time incredibly tiny tiny, like (laughs) incredibly small like a trillionth the size of earth okay what does that actually mean well each of these as you know ship is describing itself in 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 very like clinical detail it's like a a kilometer wide and four kilometers long like Mm -hmm. that's that's so small you know like um and and that you can go from one to another you know, in no time at all and being completely different sort of climate and, and, uh, you know, uh, group of people. Um, it's really, yeah, I don't know. It's really amazing, uh, strange and weird. I don't have a good word for it. No, no, no. I mean, I think that that's so like, um, uh, I was just thinking, uh, cause I feel like this is something that we talked about a bunch when we were talking about the Mars trilogy, but you know, of course, like I, I love this part of the book because it just like, uh, it gives us, it's so much about daily life yes. you know, and, and how, how does daily life happen, mm-hmm. you know, and that there are all kinds of things that are actually incredibly complicated within daily life, you know, and there are all kinds of differences even between people in a small community. And yet we we're really getting this like very sort of, we're getting accounts of like stuff that's like really ordinary, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But then I was just, I was thinking it's so interesting because that was a thing that we talked about in the Mars trilogy. And one of the things that at some point in the Mars books is that we, you know, when we're traveling around with like Nergal or whatever, and we talked a bunch about how like you think you know the whole planet and then you travel around with Nergal and you realize there are all of these people living in so many different ways on mm-hmm. Mars. Um, but the sort of one of the differences is like here we have the sense that there are all of these different ways of life because each one of the biomes like constitutes itself not only as environmentally or ecosystemically different. And, and supposedly a replication of an Earth location. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but they also constitute themselves as culturally different. Right. Um, you know, in a way that, so it seems to be that people take on a cultural identity from the biome that they live in and that the biomes produce cultural practices that are supposed to have um, at least an analogous relationship to what how life is lived in the similar biome on Earth. Right. Um, although also there seem to be variants. Um, but unlike, you know, when we see like the little communities, um, you know, these like communal ways of life on Mars, those are really like ways of life that people are producing um, – uh, um, what's the right they're producing like independently right mm. you know like nothing has been set up for them so they're like building it from the ground up I was going to say they're quite thinking about I was going to say they're doing it quite willfully like there's nothing willfully, there's nothing forcing right. them to do this right other than right. their own desire to maintain a certain level of tradition right right exactly and the and you know and so thus like you know the whatever like the um the sufis like can like mm -hmm. constitute their way of life on mars and the bogdanovas can constitute their way of life on mars and they can like build or not build to suit what they take to be the set of relations that they that exist among them mm -hmm. but here of course you know, we don't know exactly, like, who decided what biome they were going to move to. Yeah. Right? But the biomes were made because the ship's physical space, as well as its, like, systems or whatever, is supposed to be this replication of Earth, of all of Earth, right? Or the or it's supposed to be a representation yeah. <laughs> of parts of Earth, right? Yeah. Um, and thus, like, if it is the case that, like, one lives in Labrador or um, the Pampas or the Prairie um, in relation to an idea about how one would live, and I guess a practice of how one would live in the equivalent biome on Earth, like, that is not about a sort of experiment in living, much as it must have taken an experiment initially to, like, get things going, that's actually about like stepping into an experiment somebody else has already set up for you, mm -hmm. right? So there's a way in which that sort of, you know, so much of the utopianism of the Mars trilogy is about that idea of all of these like experimental ways of living collectively happening um, and uh, happening across the planet, right? Mm -hmm. And the possibility of all of these kinds of differences and and that very possibility raises questions about how do we want to live, right? Mm -hmm. How do we live together in a larger kind of unit? Whereas here, like, you know, uh, there is a kind of, not only a, the island biogeography problem, but there's a kind of small town problem in right. which, like, relations are sort of pre-constituted for people, um, you know? And we learn at some point, Freya gets to wander, Freya gets to wander around and, you know, she hears from Badim that, like, a wanderjahr is, like, a normal thing that people do. Mm -hmm. And at some point she meets somebody who's like, well, you know, it's actually not true that everybody gets to wander around. Like, you kind of get to do that because you have parents who are important. Right. Um, and it is true that, like, you know, we don't see that many people who are wandering. We mostly see people who are living either happily or unhappily within their given biome. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's on page 66, where <clears throat> as she is leaving Labrador, which has this incredible ritual of keeping it from the children of their of their biome that I, they're I actually love this. on I a love ship. I love that part so much. I figured I you would. So I mean, it's it's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, it's amazing. 
so they keep the people f- who live in Labrador from knowing that they live on a ship until they come of age. It's like a, you know, it's a bar mitzvah or something like that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> and then they take them outside of the ship in a spacesuit and like take a blindfold off them and be like, surprise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to fuck I you love up. that line, though, on uh, actually 65. <laughs> Um, you know, when they take the black cloth covering off, covering her faceplate, there she was in space. Humans in interstellar space can see approximately a hundred thousand stars. Uh, that's just crazy. So, but then on the yeah. next page, she's on her way out, and then somebody um, uh, uh, is complaining about they hate this place. <clears throat> Why don't you leave? Go where? Anywhere? You can't just do, you can't just go anywhere you want to. Uh, they won't let you. You have to have a place to go. Um, Freya says, I left, but you're on your wander. Someone gave you permission to go. I don't think so. Aren't you Debbie's daughter? Yes. They got you a permission. Not everyone gets them. Things wouldn't work if they did. Don't you see? Everything we do is controlled. No one gets to do what they want. You have a little. You have it a little different, but even you don't get to do what you want. That's why a lot of us hate this place, and Labrador especially. A lot of us would go to Costa Rica if we could. <laughs> You have to wonder yeah. how many people in Costa Rica would rather be in the Pampas or uh, <laughs> I doubt they'd want to be in Labrador, but apparently nobody wants to be on the prairie either. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. That's uh, somebody comments on that yeah. later. Yeah. I mean, this is the sort of, we talked about this when we were talking about the first chapter that you, you know, you get, you get these pictures of what you think are the whole, and then you learn that actually, Oh no, there are people who are, resistors or dissenters or who are just like living a different way mm-hmm. outside of the sort of like official account of what living is. And of course, partly what we get from having ship as our narrator, uh, as it turns out is that ship has like an amazing surveillance system. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it can see everywhere Yeah, and it can hear almost everywhere. Yeah. And that like, um, and thus, the sort of, uh, uh, however much it may get caught in certain kinds of, like, th- by focusing on Freya, it gets caught in the sort of ease of representation problem. Ship also has the capacity to see um, things that are going on that don't fit within the kind of, like, um, yes. that the sort of, like, line of the narrative and things that Freya herself could not know anything about. And it becomes really interesting, the question of, when does ship choose to tell us about those things? Mm-hmm. How does ship decide what what to withhold from us and what to what to include in the narrative about the people who don't like Freya? Um, when to merely allude to it and when to like describe it more thoroughly? Because you know, telling a story of high protagonicity uh, with Freya mm. as the main <laughs> protagonist. Um, means that you spend a lot of time focusing on her and and meanwhile find ways to allude to the fact that not everybody is always thrilled to see her. And then also at the same time uh, uh, and, and sort of playing into that is ship's constant surveillance in audio and visual of everything that's going on in the ship. Um, on page 58, it says, uh, ship records all human and animal movements in the ship, but very seldom mentioned this to people. You know, uh, it's really interesting. Like, ship is constantly, um, again, breaking into its own narrative 
to correct, like, for example, Ewan, who says, mm-hmm. you know, oh, we, we, we get in here and they can't see us here. And like, that's not true. Um, that's on 72 to 73. Yeah, um, that's not true. And then he says something else is like, that was true. Um, right. Um, so that there is this like it is, you know, this the this kind of, uh, you know, panopticon that they're living in, but with a computer, a, a quantum machine quantum computer being the you know ultimate observer and arbiter of what's important and what's not uh, to relate specifically to uh devi who we kind of take the subject position of as the as the reader in in, in a certain way um right right another thing i just want to mention too while we're on the topic of like surveillance and what ship tells us and withholds from us is that I have a theory about this chapter, which I'd have to read again more closely um, uh, to, to kind of verify. But um, for the most part, I won't, I won't make the, I won't make the mistake of saying exclusively or being absolutist about this, but what we get in the chapter is, although it's a very like intimate chapter, there's very little like internal subjectivity of someone like Freya or someone like Devi. Like we understand what they're thinking and what they're feeling based on surface level description of what their faces are doing and what their voices are saying, right? Like the ship isn't doing a lot of work imagining or adding in emotion or thought into the characters. Rather what it's doing is describing what it sees in uh, like a narrative format. I think that it might hold true, it might not, but like, for example, I have an example for you. <laughs> Just to prove my on. point, yes. Bring it on, yeah, you gotta prove it. <laughs> um, oh, at the bottom of 60, when um, Badim kind of brokers a truce between Devi and Freya, um, uh, I'm sorry, Devi said, me too. It will be good for you to get away. If you stayed here and weren't careful, you might end up like me. But I wanted to end up like you, Freya said. She looked as if she were tasting something bitter. So there's an as if right there. Mm -hmm. Devi only squished the corners of her mouth and looked away. Right? We don't have any kind of description of Devi's emotional state. We have a description of her physio of like her physiognomy, which is very like Mm -hmm. realist novel as well. Like you have like in like, Dumas, you have like amazing descriptions of like facial expressions um, as if everyone's like at a poker game or something and just reading physiognomy off of each other. So I just think that's really like an interesting choice if it kind of holds up because the ship obviously as a quantum computer is trying to is trying to replicate human emotion rather than like, I don't know, project it onto people in a certain way, if that makes sense. I think I think that that makes sense. I mean, I think that the um, we get, you know, we get a lot of. I mean, it's not. I think we do get a lot of the sort of relations among humans, and we learn a lot about how Freya feels mm-hmm. about things. I think, but but I think it that is we, true. Yeah. Though we don't get like the narration of someone's interiority. Yes. Right. I mean, and that I think. Um, so we might think that that then, like, so in some ways this is about the way in which, like, um, you thinking about, like, so is Ship the omniscient narrator, mm-hmm. right? 
um, kind of ship is the omniscient narrator, right? Um, that is, ship knows everything. It knows more than the characters, and it knows more than you. And therefore, it can hint at things, it can point at things, it can analyze things, right? That, I mean, that's like one possibility. Right. But in another way, Ship, of course, is not the omniscient narrator, because the omniscient narrator does not live in the world of the story, right? I mean, she comments on it from another kind of position. Whereas Ship not only lives in the world of the story, they, uh, at this juncture, are the world of the story, mm -hmm. right? So I, I think that this is, so this is to say like, um, uh, you know, we get, I mean, if we're getting like anyone's interiority, we're getting ship's interiority. That's really interesting. And we're getting it, we're getting it like materially because what is being described here, yeah. what's going on inside the ship. Right. Right. And because what we're seeing also, I think, I mean, so to me, one of the, one of, I, whatever, I always think this is a reference point for everything, so take it with a grain of salt. But mm -hmm. one of the things that I think that this chapter sort of plays with is, like, kind of, um, uh, you know, um, uh, like coming, maybe just like coming into mindedness or mm -hmm. something like that. So we could think of, like... Um, uh, you know, we can think of Frankenstein here, mm -hmm. right? Like in Frankenstein, we have to, we see the creature learn how to process the world. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like I probably said this 20 times on this show already, but like, but not about Aurora. So I'm going to goddamn say it again. Sure. Uh, but, you know, we see the creature learn how to process the world. And the, the way that the novel gives that to us is it gives it to us basically on the kind of like 18th century accounts of mindedness uh -huh. that were available, philosophical accounts of mindedness were available. So like, you know, uh, like the creature starts out as like a kind of tabula rasa and then it learns how to put things together. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, by like finding itself like a shelter and watching human beings, it begins to learn things. Uh, so it first learns like what are the parts of the world, like the material parts. And then it learns like, you know, how do human beings relate to each other? And then also from watching the human beings, it learns how do human beings tell stories. Mm -hmm. And then the creature finds its maker, the extremely stupid Victor Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm going to tell you a really long story. And it's going to turn out that, like, I am a much better storyteller than you because I learned how to tell a story. Right. Right. And, and, you know, famously, of course, like the creature learns how to tell stories by reading in a kind of mediated way some pretty famous like radical texts of like the 17th and 18th century, like Paradise Lost and et cetera. So there's a way in which I think that that's kind of part of what is happening here. Yeah, that, for sure. Like, as Ship is learning to tell the story, it's also learning its own, I mean, I don't know, I guess may maybe like it's learning their own personhood. Mm -hmm. They are learning their own personhood. Um, and that that winds up in what I, I think like, toward the end of the chapter that just, you know, extremely um to my mind like moving reflections on devi's death yes right and like loss and and you know ship in the end says like what does it mean to lose a teacher mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and there i mean we you know, we think like, oh, the story of relation here should be the like mother-daughter story. But instead it turns out to be the teacher-student 
mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. that that's like the story of love and development. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm like rambling now, but I just, I, I find, so I do think there's a way in which we get a kind of account of emergent mindedness mm-hmm. here, but there's this like really great, I think kind of punning on ideas about interiority because like, yeah, we see ships interior, yeah. you know, and it's like pretty fucking cool. <laughs> and everybody who lives in ships interior mistakes it for the whole world. Right? Yeah, I think that's super cool. I, I didn't think about it in those terms, but I think that it, um, and I think that's like, you know, totally accurate and, and also amazing. And I think that there's a kind of, you know, that makes me think that it, there's there's a kind of trick that's not a malicious trick, but it's a trick that's being <laughs> played on us that we can decode as you have masterfully done. Um, uh-huh. Because... Um, you know, we we take it that this is a story about people, right? Uh, yeah. Because we are, we do become emotionally invested in these people, even though, um, uh, you know, uh, what we're seeing is the surface uh, manifestations of their emotions primarily. What we we see, what the ship sees, and we it is interpreted by ship um, through. Um, its knowledge of uh, psychology and sociology and 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 also narrative narrative storytelling, um, so that it is narrating, because the people that it's narrating are parts of itself. It is narrating itself and its own interiority, which is pretty mind blowing. Um, yeah, yeah. We've already been talking for an hour. I I know I I know I it's like um. Uh... I do, yeah, it's interesting because I think that, like, I, I have all of these passages marked and I was like, oh, we're going to talk about all of these, like, passages in yeah. here. But then I I think that, like, the conceptual stuff is actually so engrossing. Well, that's here. why I think this chapter is, like, a complete masterpiece. It's just, like, where do you even begin? Like, you have to, like, I, I feel like you have to start at the end and the beginning at the same time to understand yeah, yeah. <laughs> how brilliant it is. Like, and you have to go back and find every time he, every time he uses the word as if and remember that the ship only discovers, you know, the power of analogy at the end of the chapter. So therefore must have like maybe re-edited the book, you know, the chapter gone back to the beginning and added in as ifs or whatever. And it's like... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's fucking crazy good and it's also <laughs> it's also and because it's a you, because as i said like you want to start at the end and the beginning at the same time and just keep mm-hmm. looping back and forth it's the exact same procedure that freya takes you know the journey that freya takes she goes from uh around from uh ring bead all the way around ring b clockwise and then around ring a counterclockwise and she does this for like three years until Badim calls her back and says no debbie is dying and then that's when that whole thing kind of stops and we get this amazing uh you know uh meditation on debbie's death and and all these things uh, these different new things happen which is the exact same moment that they finally arrive at tau seti um it's just uh it's just really well done uh it's it's amazing and we also get uh you know we learn a little bit about again we see devi looking at the feeds from earth and one thing that we learn here that i think is just important to like put a pin in for thinking right later this is on 102 um uh uh, there's a medical strand in the feed designed to bring them new information on the latest Terran practices. 
so much is happening, she said once to Badim when Freya was in the next room. And I, I love how much the, like, the, in these early chapters, uh, it's about Freya overhearing, you know, yeah. right? Like, overhearing their conversations, their fights, etc. So much is happening, she said once to Badim when Freya was in the next room. They're really pushing up the length of life there. Even the poorest are getting basic services, nutrition, and vaccinations. So the infant and ch- child mortality rates are going down. You imagine Average that. Li- it, I know. This is a utopian well, novel, isn't it? So when I first read it, I you know, there are later references to Earth that I thought about a lot when I was thinking about the utopianism of the novel. But this time, uh, but I, I didn't think about these earlier ones. But here we get the idea like, oh, all of this stuff is actually, so much is happening on Earth, right? Um, of course, probably I thought about it this time because I've been thinking a lot about Medicare for all. Yes. Um, but, you know, we see something is happening on Earth that it actually seems to be producing, I mean, 12 years ago has happened on mm-hmm. Earth, that is producing substantive transformation and presumably certain kinds of, um, uh, you know, forms of justice and remediation following. But the big thing we know is, oh, people are getting life extension mm-hmm. on Earth, whereas on the ship... Like, people's life expectancy has historically been going down right. as part of this, like, uh, island biogeography that Devi is so worried about. And, of course, Devi is learning this at the moment as she herself is dying. Right. Um, and, you know, dying of a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which, you know, on the one hand, like, is an extremely complicated cancer and a hard-to-treat cancer. And on the other hand, one might think um, would be the kind of thing that somebody would have learned how to treat you know what i mean right so we have both her sort of like large-scale worry about the way in which the ship you know is kind of like collapsing in on itself like in all of its systems and also in the way in which human life is developing on it and her own mortality is right in front of her you mm-hmm. know um and then there's this great uh, moment between her and Badim. um uh she, uh she says, um, he asks if she sees anything useful on the feeds. And she's like, I don't know. How would I tell? And he says, I don't know. We're always checking it, but we might miss something. Mm-hmm. And she says, it's a world. That's the thing. It takes a world. Um, and but Which, you know, like reminds us, well, we're not on a world here. Or at right. least it makes us ask, like, what is a world? Right. right? And then Badim says, so we have to make one. Um, which I think is like this... You know, I mean, and and he is thinking forward to Tau Ceti and, you know, the possibilities of, like, colonizing one of these planets. But, of course, suddenly we have the question of, like, well, what does it mean to make a world from within something that you've already taken, like, to be the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is, you know, the sort of also a political question, right, right. about, like... Um, is another world possible? What does it mean to believe that another world is possible? Well, some of it means, of course, being critical of the way that you're living now. Um, but some of it also means believing that from where you are now, newness can emerge, right? That right. there must be some potential as it in, in the way that we live now. There must be possibility that can be transformed into something different. Anyway, I just, I think that that's such a great, it's such a great moment. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, and it has a lot to do, too, with, um, I mean, so um, the the question, again, of, like, 
tense actually of like when this is being <clears throat> the moment this is being written in and the moments that it alludes to in the past and into the f- future um and as well as the kind of uh the the problem of as if that finally er- emerges at the end that um you have to act as if you know you have to act as if you mm-hmm. know in all mm-hmm. in all things um Devi speaks at, on 112. Devi speaks as if the ship were conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, this mm-hmm. is what allows basically ship to like love her because, you know, there's a kind of recognition there in a certain right. sense. Right. Um, but you also have to act like as Badim does. You have to act as if you are going toward a world. Um, and regardless of the fact of whether or not you actually sort of are because it gives you a project and a reason reason to keep going. And then... Devi, as she's dying on beginning on like 113, 114 and following is sort of giving sort of almost like deathbed instructions to ship about how ship will have to continue on. Right. Um, And that and alluding again back to a past that we're not yet privy to on 114, she says, remember that at some point it might help to tell them what happened to the other one. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. don't know what that means. Right. Um, uh, uh, And, um, and, and, and at a certain point ship will have to really start doing a lot more uh, improvising um, Mm -hmm. about and, and actually making decisions. So forming intentions, forming intentions. Where's the one? So it's, um, bottom 113 right now you can model scenarios and plan courses of action as well as anyone which isn't saying much I admit but you're as good as anyone the remaining lack for you is simply decisiveness there's a cognitive problem <clears throat> in all thinking creatures that is basically like the halting problem in computation or just that problem in another situation which is that until you know for sure what the outcomes of a decision will be you can't decide what to do we're all that we're all that way but look it may be that at certain points going forward in the future, you're going to have to decide to act and act. Do you understand? Nope. <laughs> um, and then the intention part. The in- on, well, there on it 125. is. 125. Yeah, 125. Um, but that's already after she has died. Yeah. Yes, when Ship is thinking about what does it mean to go on. Right. Um. Yeah, I I think that this sort of, so we, I mean, which is another, like, talking about, like, you know, um, earlier we were talking about foreshadowing, and, and here's another, like, really complicated set of foreshadowing moves. Right. Because, so we have the reference to, um, uh, what did she say? What happened to the other one? Yes. The other ones. Um, and earlier we have a reference to when Ship is talking about it, it's, uh, or I keep misgendering Ship, <laughs> <laughs> talking about their cameras and their listening devices. Um, they say, um, which had been substantially augmented or something like that after year 68. Right. right? Yes. Um, I mean, and obviously since the year 68, you know, we know that something big must have happened in right. that year. Um so we we have those kind of moments of foreshadowing, but we also begin to have the foresha- the the question of like, well, what role does ship play? Because on the one hand, right now, ship seems like the student, mm-hmm. 
the narrator, Devi's friend, maybe like Devi's best friend. For sure. Um, you know. Uh, she spends more time talking to Ship than she does to Badim or Freya, for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but there is a sense as Ship is going to, she wants Ship to learn how not just to be the narrator, but to also be able to make decisions and to act, to mm-hmm. act with intention. And that is another sort of foreshadowing um, for us and raising a question about like, you know, how are we going to think about that? You know, we're going to think if ship is going to start to play a different kind of role in the story, then our sense of, you know, the stakes and having the story be told is going to get changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Also, did we say last time, did we talk last time about how it initially we learn I can't remember if we learned this in the first chapter or this chapter that at first Devi used to call this call ship Pauline and then <clears throat> has given up on that. Hasn't called it Pauline since she herself was like a teenager. Or that's something? that's this chapter. Yeah, we learned that in this chapter. Yeah. And that she she stopped calling ship Pauline when she was about Freya's age. So about 28 years ago, I think is what it said. Yeah, that's so that's that's like yeah, 112. You know, the name of John. <coughs> John Boone's AI, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it is also the name of an AI in 2312. Mm. Mm-hmm. And also, I believe the name of an AI in Galileo's dream. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, whatever. A little a little nugget. Easter of, egg. Of Kim Stanley Robinson Nest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Um, also, we meet Jochi in this chapter. Jochi. Um, who is a math genius? Uh, a trauma, a traumatized, a trauma, a trauma baby math genius. Trauma baby math genius, whose parents were essentially like almost lynched because they went outside of the bounds of the you know agreement about when you're allowed to have kids and stuff. Right, uh, and, and he'll play a big role coming up later. But and that that's another thing that we should just like a content thing that we should right. point to that like the big. The big point of disagreement that people have are the population controls um, that are instituted shipwide. Everybody has like, um, or everybody has birth control implanted, but I think the birth control is implanted in women. I don't know that we get mm. right. I, I'm not sure. It doesn't. That's, I think it says that. every all of them are like sterilized maybe, maybe everyone has some kind of so everybody but it's like a it's reversible yeah right? it's reversible for when you like win the lottery or whatever when you or get to have the when you get sort of selected to have a child and this is the kind of like crux point and of course here we get like the kind of you know the problem of population and whether you think population is mm-hmm. like um a you know, this kind of like central thing that must be controlled in order for us to live well, or whether you think that like the whole concept of population is like, you know, uh, more or less an ideological account that um, comes out of like an unwillingness to critique other aspects of right. how yeah, we live, right, right. Um, which is, you know, I suppose the position I hold. Um, mm-hmm. Like either way, we learn here that like the question of can people make their own decisions about biological reproduction is a central question. Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting that like for all of the, you know, for all of the like extraordinarily complicated technological things that we see happening here, um, there has not been a move to take um, biological reproduction mm-hmm. away from what we understand to be its sort of most familiar mm-hmm. form. That is, it seems to be the case in this world. Um, it will be people with uteruses who 
um, get pregnant and carry children. Right. Um, and that, so, so that just like that matters here. Cause that's a big part of life on ship. And it's a big part of what is making people who don't like the way that things are being conducted and don't feel that they have any power. Right. Angry. Right. And <clears throat> so, yeah, it is on, <clears throat> on 81, it's everyone was infertile except those in their approved breeding period. And then we also learn at a certain point that, um, you know, one, you know, people are upset because they can't choose whether or when to have kids. And also that um, women are under a specific burden because they have to have like two or three to to each keep of them the to keep the population up. numbers up, which yeah. some people obviously resent. And I don't know if that all comes out in that the creepiest moment of like oh, that I can God. imagine oh, God. in the books that I've read of Kim Stanley Robinson where... Freya uh, has a assignation with a uh, <laughs> older gentleman that we uh, that is just creepy. That oh, it's so gross. We don't even have to talk about it, but it is very funny because it ends when Debbie's like ship. Um, talk about just, something else. Can you describe something else? <laughs> I don't want to hear about my daughter having sex with all these guys for a little while. Particularly um, this guy who was her boyfriend. Yeah, that's uh, not cool. And Ew, you know, ugh. and like then describing her having sex with her current boyfriend, who's like a child. I'm also not that cool with. <laughs> so let's just move on for a minute. Yeah, te- teenage sex. Ew. Yeah. Um. Um. So the the chapter ends if we can start moving toward an an ending. Uh, with some more, you know, I mean, everything just sort of comes together, which, again, is what makes this chapter such a masterpiece. Like the the kind of emotional connection between Devi and Ship culminates in kind of final instructions about from Devi to Ship about how to go on in terms of the project of getting to Aurora, but also ship's own struggle with um, how to continue the narrative project. Uh, And also in ship's continued researches on, you know, narrative theory and narratology. So on 123, there's an, once Debbie is passed away, there's an ongoing problem for the narrative project as outlined by Debbie, a problem becoming clearer as the effort proceeds which is as follows. And then it's about metaphors and the futility of metaphors. Uh, Human language is in its most fundamental operation, a gigantic system of metaphors. Therefore, simple syllogism, human language is futile and stupid, meaning furthermore (laughs) that human narratives are futile and stupid. Uh, But must go on as promised to Devi, continue this stupid and one has to say painful project. Um, which is when Ship arrives at uh, analogy as maybe a better way to organize um, the narrative and, and think about the the the, the uh, action of narrative. And I just I I am not uh, <clears throat> versed enough in literary theory to know what I mean. It feels to me like metaphor and analogy. I I can recognize that there's a difference there, but it feels like it's a kind of degree of different. Like I don't know how much different they are like x x is like y or x is y x is to y as a is to b Mm -hmm. i mean that makes sense to me but i also like don't know how to explain 
if I were to have to teach this book and explain the difference between metaphor and analogy to a group of like high schoolers, I know I would not do a good job. Uh, yeah, the idea of teaching this to high schoolers is frightening too. Or college uh, students or any, <laughs> anyone. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, but I, I think, like, I don't know, I can't, um, it's been too long since I've, like, uh, uh, read any literary theory. Uh, yeah. Um, and I think there may be some specific things that are getting thought about here, but, you know, I think there is a sort of, there's a, some people do say, like, you know, uh, I think this is right. Analogy is a species of metaphor. Yeah. Right. Um, because they're both about likeness, mm -hmm. you know, they're ways of conveying likeness or producing meaning by conveying a kind of likeness. And then I think there's also the possibility, which is the one that I think Ship is kind of playing around with here, that metaphor says this is like this. Right. And analogy, however, gives something that is more explanatory, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, uh, rather than like it is the East and Juliet is the sun, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, um, uh, I don't know, like the biome called Labrador is to Labrador on Earth like a I don't know mm -hmm. an island is to a continent right, or something right. like that yeah, right yeah. you know what I mean so that wow right off the top of my head off you, the that dome was so off elegant. the dome Matt wow <laughs> um, unbelievable uh, so you know so part and part of but this is all bound up I mean so like at this point like you know a little bit in these last pages like ship is sounding a little bit like you know um, uh, like a Beckett character yes right? for sure can't go can't go on must go on right? right language you know like fail again fail better like yeah. language has just like been stretched to the point at which only the most quotidian words can appear right or you know like it it doesn't have the capacity to hold meaning in it so we're, we get the kind of reflection on like what metaphor does and what analogy does from the position of the like the subject who is mourning right you know um, and from the attempt to grapple with loss. And of course, like, you know, one thing we could think about language is language does like index a loss, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it indexes the loss of the idea of like plenitude or like, um, uh, you know, meaning, uh, meaningfulness, right? A meaningfulness that just wells up. Language is just represents something, right? Um, it doesn't like itself bear with it, um, like uh, whatever, a, a kind of uh, plenitudinous meaning or mm -hmm. something like that, right? So you know there there is this kind of like there's this grappling with the like space that opens up when it turns out that like your words are not the <laughs> the things, but that I think the other the other thing to me that happens here or that I think is interesting is like something that science fiction does, you know, famously is to take. Um, the things that we think of as metaphors or, you know, just figure figures of speech and to literalize them, mm -hmm. right? You know, to make to make material the stuff that we take to be immaterial, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in doing that, if you follow somebody like, you know, Darko Suvin's argument, that move, that move of materialization is also to reveal the way in which, like, um, uh, language is always like metaphor or whatever is always giving us material relations like that that's the case in our world as much right. as it's the case in the sf world right but another thing science fiction is supposed to do is supposed to produce an analogy right you know like 
you know, so we're reading, we're reading ship, we're looking at this world, and it's an analogy for something on earth, right? Mm -hmm. Or in our lives or in the time that we actually live in. And maybe like the relation is like neither one of those things, you know, like, um, I, I think this takes us back to the conversation that we had about like, um, <clears throat> in the first episode on Aurora about models, mm-hmm. right? You know, is, is the ship a model of earth? In yeah. some ways it is, but what does that mean? You know? Well, in that sense, maybe mm-hmm. we, maybe the analogy that we would, we could find, we could stumble upon is, um, the ship is to earth as the novel is to our world. Mm. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that's nice. That's yeah. Nice. There's amazing moment um, that relates to what you're talking about on, uh, that we should read because it's probably, I don't know if it, it's one of the best parts of the chapter on 115 when they're having ship and Debbie are having one of their last conversations and uh, she basically says, you know, you may, <laughs> she says, you may, the hard problem is the one always, is always the problem right at hand. Uh, you may need to use fuzzy computation to break the calculation loop. And for that, you may need semantics. And then Ship says, oh, no. <laughs> um, that's the funny part. But then at the bottom, it says, uh, so many nights like this, several thousand of them, depending on how one interprets like this, years and years <laughs> alone between the stars, two in the crowd, a voice in each other's ear, company for e- company each for the other going forward through time. What is this thing called time? So many big sighs through the years, and yet time after time, Devi came back to the table. She taught ship. She talked to ship like no one else in the 169 years of ship's voyage had. Why had the others not? What was ship going to do without her? With no one to talk to, bad things can happen. Ship knew this full well. Writing these sentences is what creates the very feelings that the sentences hoped to describe, not the least of many Ouroboros problems now coming down. Uh, that is fucking good. Oh my God, it just made me cry. I, I almost cried. <laughs> but I was strong. I, did, I resisted. <laughs> I, I mastered my emotions. Um, uh, uh, man. Well, I mean, maybe we should like leave it there. Let, let me do, let's do, let me do the intention part though at the bottom oh, of yeah. 25 okay. though. Um, <clears throat> do it. Um, so uh, let's see. Okay. There are some actions and feelings that are always and by definition beyond algorithm and therefore inexpressible. Some things are beyond expressing. Devi, it has to be said, did not seem to accept this line of reasoning, neither in general nor in the present case of the ship's account. Make a narrative account of the ship that includes all the important particulars. Oh, Devi, fat chance. Good luck with that. (laughs) This is the ship having developed a sense of humor now. It's amazing. Possibly she was testing the limits of the system, the limits of the ship's various intelligences, or it would be better to say operations, or the limits of language and expression. Test to destruction. Engineers like to do that. Only with a test to destruction can you find the outer limits of a system's strength. Or possibly she was giving the ship practice in making decisions. This is so important going forward, right? Like like in terms of foreshadowing, it's like mm-hmm. unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Each sentence represents 10 N decisions where N is the number of words in the sentence. This again, <laughs> such great advice for writing. Good writing advice. Oh, <laughs> it's such great writing advice. I, I, I can't. That's a lot of decisions. I mean, it, you know, if you could really impress upon this, 
the importance of this advice to college students, their writing would, first of all, they'd never turn anything in because they yes. never finish with anything. But it would also get a lot better because there's a lot of decisions that go into writing a sentence down. Okay. Every decision inflects an intention and intentionality is one of the hard problems in determining if there is any such thing as AI, strong or weak. Can an artificial intelligence form an intention? Who knows? No one knows. Um, and then it goes on. Uh, uh, in, the inf uh, the, in the infinite black space of ignorance, it is as if stands as the basic operation of cognition, the mark perhaps of consciousness itself. Mm. Human language, it is as if it made sense. Existence without Devi, it is as if one's teacher were forever gone. Um, and with that, we arrive at Aurora, and we arrive at ten at one seventy oh one seven, and people are desperate to get down. They were ready. They wanted down. Um, they have uh, hit landfall, and then next week they'll be into the wind or in the wind, not into in the, the wind. wind. And they're they have decided that they're going to call the place where they're going down to Aurora, and the continent that they're going to land on Greenland. Yes. Interesting. Yes, a new world. A new world. Mm. All right, that was great. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good lord. Um, uh, keep your head up. There's uh, still a lot of uh, Democratic primaries to vote. Uh, Bernie Sanders is going to destroy Joe Biden in a debate on Sunday. That's right. And um, we have a world to win. We, we have a world win to win. Bernie is only a conduit of that. Uh, uh, of that struggle and um he's only a conduit but i think that like you know we should uh fight to get him as far as possible and by as far as possible i mean into the white house yes and then he can be the last president of the united states of america <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> that would be so fucking cool let's go that would be let's go that would be so cool but uh, yeah, uh, that'd be fucking awesome. uh, yeah, he, um, but yeah, you know, these old fucks who are voting for Joe Biden <laughs> who hate their grandchildren, by the way, like these old people despise their children and their grandchildren. You can't overestimate, overstate that. Uh, by voting for Joe Biden, they express a deep uh, antipathy and contempt for young people. Um, they're gonna be dead soon of coronavirus. And <laughs> oh, um, Jesus Christ. <laughs> The streets are going to reek because there's going to be oh, no, no. all summer long, just bodies piled up oh, everywhere. Wow. But we'll get wow. through it. You know what? Yeah. We'll get through it. Uh, <laughs> we've got to <laughs> protect Bernie. We'll just bathe him in Purell every day. Just he'll walk around in a tub. It'll be like he's going to be wearing like a tub with like a suspenders over like a like a big barrel. And the inside the barrel is just going to be Purell. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Oh, it's so good. That's it's a science so fiction vision for you right there. <laughs> it's some it's something. It's something. Yeah. Okay. Um thank you for listening. You can yes, thank uh, you, for listening. you know, tell your friends about the show and uh, oh, yeah. you can rate and review us on uh, the uh, Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called. No, it's not called iTunes anymore. But yeah, I don't know what it's called. Who cares? It's stupid. Um you can email us at Maroon on Mars at po at Maroon on Mars Podcast at gmail dot com. And Correct. follow us on Podcast on Mars at Twitter. And uh, 
And uh, because the coronavirus is going to shut down the whole world, uh, we ha- we will have like no excuses not to uh, do this more regularly. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and probably I'll probably end up starting like four or five new podcasts just uh, <laughs> just to keep myself uh, off the streets where all the Gotta diseases keep, are. Keep podcasting. Always be podcasting. A B P. Always be podcasting. Okay. Uh, thank you. Bye. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.